Welcome to Rework, a podcast by Basecamp about the better way to work and run your business. It's August, the sun's out, and we're taking a little break this month. But don't worry, we won't leave you hanging. For the next few weeks, we'll be bringing you a few episodes of Basecamp's very first podcast. In fact, this is far enough back that not only were Sean and I not working here at the time, but the company wasn't even called Basecamp. Back in 2009, when this podcast started, this company was called 37 Signals. Today, you're going to hear episode two called Valuation Tales. Host Matt Linderman references a fake press release at the top of the show. You can find that press release at signalvnoise.com if you hit the magnifying glass in the upper right and search for press release. It should be the first result that comes up. Hello and welcome to episode two of the 37 Signals podcast. My name is Matt Linderman. We'll be talking with Jason Fried and David Hennemeyer Hansen today about company valuations and the idea of selling out. We start with a discussion of a mock press release recently posted at Signal vs. Noise, and that leads us into the world of tech company valuations, the role that press plays, and we discuss companies like Twitter and Facebook and the recent sale of Mint. And that led us into a discussion of what makes for a great company? The idea of building a company over the long term versus selling your company and retiring or being a serial entrepreneur. But let's start off with the discussion of the mock press release. I'll read a little bit of it to you. The headline is 37 Signals Valuation Tops $100 Billion After Bold VC Investment. And then the press release reads, 37 Signals is now a $100 billion company, according to a group of investors who have agreed to purchase 0.0000000001% of the company in exchange for a dollar. In order to increase the value of the company, 37 Signals has decided to stop generating revenues. When it comes to valuation, making money is a real obstacle. Our profitability has been a real drag on our valuation, said Jason Fried. Once you have profits, it's impossible to just make stuff up. That's why we're switching to a free economics model. We'll give everything away for free and let the market speculate about how much money we could make if we wanted to make money. That way, the sky's the limit. And the press release goes on from there. Really, the best way to experience it, I think, is to read it. Uh, you can find a link to the press release at 37signals.com slash podcast. We'll post a summary of each episode there as well as links to anything we discuss. So what's the story behind this mock press release? Well, here's Jason. The the whole kind of thing that's going on in the tech world, which is sort of a repeat of the late 90s, I think, these ridiculous valuations for companies that don't make any money or even some of them don't even have any revenue. Uh, and it wasn't about any one company in particular. There's a lot of examples of this. If you look at just if you read ridiculous sites like TechCrunch and those kind of sites, you'll see just talks about valuation all, the, all day long about they raised this round, now they're worth this much and raise another round, now they're worth that much. And it's just kind of silly. Uh, so we thought that we'd kind of have some fun with it and, uh, and write a press release about someone investing in $1 on us for you know, a certain small percentage, making us worth $100 billion. And it got a lot of, lot of traction. Uh, it was really fun, in fact. A lot of great comments. Uh, a lot of people got the joke. Some people were really offended by it, as usual. Um, I think the people were offended by it. I think that shows an interesting – it gives an insight into sort of an industry ethos right now where, where people – if you're offended by something like that, which is clearly just a fun, like tongue-in-cheek, goofy thing, uh, then I feel like you're being a bit self-conscious and a bit worried about the model that you're actually following. Um, if you think that that's a threat to your model at all, um, so that was kind of interesting. 
but uh, it got a lot of play. It got a lot of you know a lot of write ups. Got some press off of it, which was fun too. But fu- fundamentally, it was just to make a point, which is valuations based on things other than revenues and profits are kind of ridiculous. And that was the idea. Well, I think there's also an aspect to it of uh, the idea that charging money for a product can actually like decrease the value of your company because it all of a sudden reality is there as opposed to when you yeah. you don't charge anything then you're still in fantasy land where anything is possible um, yeah that too yeah so part of the press release was that we said we would stop charging for our products because it was interfering with our valuation so that was uh that was one of the, the parts that people really seemed to like as well like that was requoted a lot um and, and it, that's true. I mean, you know, you can look at some of these companies that are valued with enormous, enormous valuations. And if, if they actually had any revenue, those valuations wouldn't stand anymore. So, in fact, it's to their advantage not to make money if they're playing their valuation game, um, which is also kind of ridiculous. So, but anyway, that's, that's kind of what happens in, in this business. It seems uh, every decade or so, it seems to get like this. And do you, as, as a target for, for, who we were going after? Do you see it as, as being the press and, and their coverage, or is it these other companies that are sort of playing this game, or the VC people, or is it an entire culture? That- I think it's the whole circus. I think that there's way too many constituencies or constituents of this circus that are just too happy to play along. But I, I put most of the blame actually on the journalists here, especially journalists in the uh, sort of the tech or financial industry, that they should be picking this stuff apart. Like if there was any critical reporting on a lot of these deals, they would be exposed for how ridiculous they really are. And I think it's way too often that somebody's just basically reprinting the press release coming out. Oh, we raised a, a Series B round, and now this company is worth ridiculous number. Like, go behind the numbers, poke at uh, what they're actually basing this off, and uh, expose it when it just looks phony, as it does in. Uh, in way too many cases, when people are using these uh, fictitious um, metrics to measure the worth, oh, we don't actually have any revenues, but we have eyeballs. I mean, eyeballs was sort of the um, stereotypical metric used back in, in the dot-com boom and bust that all that matters is just getting eyeballs. And now people are sort of using a similar set of fake make-believe metrics that don't really mean anything but that's all they have because they don't either want to go the revenue route just yet because those numbers might be depressingly small and they wouldn't be able to get those evaluations or um, they just they just don't have anything else to go with so you come up with these these bullshit numbers instead that can be twisted into meaning whatever it is and it's sort of it goes in the same way of some of the other evaluation numbers i've heard for company sales so company doesn't have any revenues how do you price it out if you want to buy it uh one number i heard was one million dollars per employees like how is that not just the most ridiculous thing ever why would you want to basically reward a company for just hiring people like that's the worst thing you should be rewarding people on like efficient companies run with the least amount of employees that they can possibly have to get maximum amount of revenue so just buying a company and paying them for how many warm bodies that they put in seats is just absolutely ridiculous but nonetheless that has actually happened that has been a metric used for this and it's just it's ridiculous and it should be exposed as being ridiculous and i think that that's sort of the what annoys me the most is just the hands-offness of this, that nobody's calling this bullshit bullshit. 
um, and nobody, especially journalists, are just taking that critical angle on it. I don't understand why that's uh, why that's not happening more. Yeah, and I don't really, you know, I don't blame the companies so much if they feel like they want to. Ra- I mean, I'm not a big fan of raising money, as we've discussed many times, but. Uh, if you want to raise money, fine, and that's fine. If someone's going to make, give you a big valuation, that's fine. Like it's not really your problem. But I totally agree with David about the, the press angle. And I don't want to. I don't think either of us want to sound like it. You know, blame the media kind of guys because it's not really like a huge deal ultimately. But uh, there should be some more critical reporting on this and someone calling the stuff out. And so since it doesn't seem like many people are, we thought we'd have fun with it and do it ourselves. I mean, our reach is very small compared to someone like Business Week or Inc. or Entrepreneur who should be calling this stuff out. But maybe this will at least get some other people to think about it in a new way and, and, t- and help them or encourage them to take it on. And I think actually the problem, I perhaps think it's more of a big issue because I think the problem with this is that when all this is just being reported as this is the way things are, new entrepreneurs coming into the scene expect that this is the way things are. And that what you should be targeting is just these phony metrics. And if you target these phony metrics, you too are going to be worth uh, millions or billions of dollars. And I think that's really damaging because for that next crop of new companies being started, they should be going after making real money. They shouldn't be going after these fake metrics. They shouldn't be going after just these ludicrous evaluations. But that's what's going to happen when all sort of the stars of the reporting, all the role models are just part of this circus. Yeah, it's true. I'm with you on that too. And how about, uh, you know, some people pointed out that they think it's a specifically a shot at say Twitter or Facebook or YouTube. Is there any accuracy to that? How, how do you guys feel about those companies and, and the values that are being placed on them and the approach that they're taking? Well, the timing was was obviously curious. A lot of people pointed that out when we released the press release, our fake press release on the day that Twitter announced their big funding round, which made them worth a billion dollars. Um, but actually, we've been working on that press release for a couple of weeks and had the idea for even lo- a little bit longer than that. It just happened that we released it the same day that they released theirs. Um, we just release stuff when it's done, and it happened to be done on that day. So, and if we would have waited three days, it wouldn't have mattered. The people would still draw the same conclusions, and I think that's kind of the point. If people are drawing those conclusions, doesn't that say something? that we're talking about ridiculous valuations and people say, oh, this was about Twitter. Well, it really wasn't about Twitter, but if you want to connect the dots and make it about Twitter, that's fine, because Twitter is one example of many companies that I think have ridiculous valuations. Now, that doesn't mean I don't like Twitter. I like Twitter a lot, actually. I think the product's fantastic. It's a great, great product, but it's not a great business yet. It may be a great business. Who knows? But it's not yet. And so I, I don't see how Twitter could be worth a billion dollars or more. Um, just from a purely business perspective. Um, that's not to say that they can't be, but they're not right now. Uh, Facebook at least appears to have some real revenues. Uh, they don't seem to be profitable yet, but no one really knows either. They're private. But, I mean, to me, I think Facebook's kind of the real deal, and they're going to be around for as long as they want to be around. Um, as far And YouTube apparently is losing money for Google and has always been losing money. I don't know the details. I don't think anyone really knows the details either, so it's kind of hard to comment on it. But... Um, you know, those are just three of the sort of high-profile examples. But again, if you if you follow tech news closely, you'll see lots and lots of examples of companies raising money and then seeing their valuations skyrocket, um, especially when they don't have any revenues. Um, so anyway, that's that's kind of the point. It wasn't about any specific company; it was just about an idea in general. And there's certain poster children uh, that apply, I think, better than others, maybe. 
And there was, uh, you know, one specific company that you did discuss recently was Mint and their sale to Intuit. And, uh, well, you wrote a lengthy post sort of, I don't know, uh, bemoaning that sale. Like, why don't you tell us why you, why you thought it was yeah. a bad thing? Well, the one thing I'll say is it taught me a lesson, actually, uh, about writing. And that is I should stay focused on one topic. And the main point about this, the, the Mint thing um, was that it disapp- the sale disappointed me. And first of all, let me just say, of course, that if an entrepreneur wants to sell their company, they should do that. That's what they want to do. I, I wouldn't ever say don't do it if you don't want to do it. So it wasn't really a dig on the entrepreneur himself. But um, the idea that the next generation, the great companies that appear to be the leaders of the next generation are kind of aimed at selling their companies makes me a little bit worried because I, I just don't know whatever happened to – the, the next generation kicking the shit out of the old generation. You know, who are the great new companies that are going to be around in 10 years if all the great ones are selling out in a few years to the old guys? You know, where's the next Apple? Where's the next Amazon? Where's the next, you know, even on the, you know, uh, there's, there's a bunch of them, obviously. Uh, where are they? I'm not going to go through a huge list, but where are they going to come from if they're just kind of selling out? And one of the problems is, is that a lot of these new companies aren't making any money. So they have to sell. And they're also funded by venture capitalists, maybe even more than one round. If you start getting more and more rounds in, um, there's more and more pressure to sell. And like, so what happens is, is you build all these new great companies that seem to have great products and everything, but they can't stay around. They can't stick around because they're physically incapable of doing so. All the pressure is pointed towards selling and exiting. And so I just don't know where the great next, the great you know next generation of companies is going to come for. So that was the main point of the post. But in the beginning of the post, second paragraph, I think I had a couple sentences ripping on VCs, and that's kind of where uh, most of the additional fodder came from. And I think it, had I written the article again, it wouldn't have been about VCs at all because that's not really the point so much as my main point was what's going to happen to these new companies or where, where's the next generation going to come from if they keep selling early. I do think the VC point makes sense whether or not in this particular case it was about them encouraging the sale or not. As soon as you take VC money on, you sort of have a, a like you're strapping a time bomb to your back in terms right. of getting out. Like, and that time bomb is going to be programmed usually in three to five years. Some liquidity event, which by the way, I fucking hate that term. Liquidity event. I mean, how much more <laughs> bullshit can you get about something like just selling your company? So I apologize. Yeah that um, well, you know david I, I actually i totally agree with you i was just talking more about this particular post I, like, no i i yeah. agree with that that it's yeah. i mean when you don't know necessarily what was going on in that boardroom it's hard to to speculate on it although right. i don't think it's out of the question to speculate on things um i obviously this is commentary coming from an outsider uh right. and it's being presented as such but let's leave that point behind um i think the main point about the vcs is that i think it's absolutely true as soon as you take vc money on um, the likelihood that you're going to end up in a, in a sale rather than just running your company as a private entity for the next 20 years is going to, of course, go way up. There's very few uh, VC-backed companies that end up running it like that. And well, since- today, especially. Right. In the past, you could go IPO. You know, Apple took a round, of course, and yeah. Microsoft took a round, and, and you know, other companies take rounds. But um, interestingly enough, I believe that Google, Apple, and Microsoft only took one round of funding, if I remember correctly, um, because they're actually making money and they didn't need to take any more. Um, and they had they had a public route, so they can stay stay their own company. Uh, and today, it seems like the IPO market is dead for now and has been for a few years. Who knows what that will, when that will change? So the only route for VCs to get out is to sell. 
which is why the point was that even if the entrepreneur himself decided, if Aaron, I think is his name, decided to uh, to sell the company on his own right, um, you know, the the entire model makes that idea slide into your head a little bit earlier. I think just because there there are encouragements, just because the model itself encourages you to sell. Absolutely. And I know, David, that's something you've you've written and talked about, this idea that, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs have a fantasy of, of selling out one day and taking their millions and going off to an island somewhere. And and you've said that Mojito Island is a mirage. What do you mean by that? I think that the idea of you selling your company for a big pot of money and then just retiring and living happily ever after uh, is a mirage. I don't think it works like that very often. I don't think generally... People who have the skills and the determination to build a company up to the point where it can be sold for a lot of money are the same kind of people who can just lean back and live the rest of their life in just leisure. I don't think it works like that. I think that the drive that creates the kind of companies that can't be sold for a lot of money is the same kind of drive that's inherent in these people that you have to put your skills to, to good use. I've heard a lot of sort of commentary coming off that then being, well, selling your first company is all about securing some kind of future or something. And then you can go off and do all the things you really want to do. What? Why aren't you doing the things that you really want to do? And I actually don't think that's true for very many of these entrepreneurs who do build great companies. I think it's very hard for you to build a great company if you're not working on something that you're actually truly passionate about. And I think a lot of this commentary is coming from people who just, for whatever reason, don't necessarily have that determination to make it happen and perhaps don't like their day job. So they can sort of emphasize with the idea that, well, I sort of don't really like work. So if I had the chance to just sell my company and then do what I really wanted to do, of course I would do that. And that's just not a comparable situation because that's not, in my mind, how most of these entrepreneurs find themselves. And I think it's a false dichotomy too, that either you're going to um, sell your company for a lot of money to, to somebody or you're, you're risking it all and there's no way that you're ever going to be rich and do all the other things that you would. Like, how do you think most companies in the world got to the point of being massively profitable and having sort of wealth created? That was running a company and um, taking revenues and taking profits out of that company. But, of course, because we are in this culture, this tech culture, where the whole notion of even being having a profitable company sort of seems like a, a magical pony, That I can see how that then factors into it. Like, why would I want to keep my company when the idea of it being massively profitable seems so foreign? Well, maybe that's the problem. Maybe the problem is that you should instead just be focusing on building a company that could actually be massively profitable and you could be rich for whatever your determination of rich will be. I just don't like the whole idea that the only way you're going to be um, successful like financially is the idea that you're going to sell your company to somebody else. This is something I actually just talked about at startup school. One of my points was, was similar to that, which was uh, – that I, I think in our business, a lot of young, especially young entrepreneurs, think that 
wealth. And of course, these terms are all relative wealth and rich. And, you know, everyone has their own levels of what that means, but that they think that that has to be given to them by somebody else, that they have to be anointed, that someone has to tap them on the head with a magic wand, either that being a company that buys them or a venture capitalist who puts a lot of money into their company, that they can't do it themselves, that they need permission from somebody else to be wealthy or financially independent or whatever it might be. And that's just not true either. It's just so not true. And it's so painful to see people think that the only way they can make it is with someone else's permission or someone else's blessing. And that's just not the case. Um, so we're trying to just you know, help people recognize that that isn't the way it has to be. And what about the idea of serial entrepreneurs, people who think, OK, I'm going to I'm going to sell this idea, but then, you know, I've got a, another one up my sleeve or I'll come up with something down the line and, and that'll be the company that I really care about. Or I'll, I'll just keep doing that. I'll keep starting more and more companies. Well, I mean, there are some people who who can do that, who are good at that. I've met some recently that have surprised me. Um, some people are just really good at starting companies, building them and selling them and starting the next one and building them and selling them. And so people like that do exist. Um, but I think that it's sort of rare that lightning strikes twice on, on big successes. Uh, and I think that if you have something that's going well now and you enjoy doing it, why would you look forward to doing something else? Uh, just keep doing what you're doing. And this could be your life's work. The idea that your life's work is somewhere down the road doesn't have to be the case at all. And the other thing is that you don't have to get failure out of your system. People talk about you fail first, you get all your failures out early, and you fail a bunch of times, and you'll eventually succeed. And I don't think failure is something that you just simply get out of your system. So if you're succeeding on something now, I would just stick to it and not not get rid of it, not get rid of a good thing. And I think the other point is, too, like why do you get to the point that you want to sell your business and get out? I think a lot of that is actually because you involve VCs and now the thing is growing and you're spending most of your time doing bullshit board meetings or other sort of activities that has nothing to do with the core work that you enjoyed in the first place. And then obviously you would want to get out from that. Instead, I think that a lot of companies could just choose to A, stay at a size that's interesting for them to do. Like I've talked to a fair number of entrepreneurs who say, do you know what? I really like when the company is less than 20 people. Like that's really energizing to me. That's fun. That's sort of where the passion is all about. And then as soon as you get into having like 30, 40, 50, 100, 1,000 people, like it's not fun anymore. Well, who says you have to be more than 20 people? Like if your definition of running a company that you're interested in being associated with is having a group that's 20 people or less, why don't you just keep it like that? Who... Uh, is dictating that you have to grow to 100 people. Well, often those dictates comes from like you have to grow, grow, grow because um, there's sort of like a roadmap the VCs have in their mind or the board have in their mind of how this is supposed to, or even their entrepreneur himself have in their mind of how this is supposed to go. Well, the great thing about starting your own company is that you set your own rules. You get to choose how big do you want your company to be. Nobody else um, should be telling you that you have to go to X number of people or X layers of bureaucracy. If you find it interesting to just have a small company, why don't you just build that and, and try to see what you can maximize within, uh, within those constraints? Because I think that's certainly true of what we've done. Like, we've had no interest in being a 100-person uh, company, so we've been trying very, very hard to keep the company uh, as small as we can within those constraints. So it's absolutely doable. It's absolutely workable. And I think um, just having that mindset that you pick the rules, that 
you don't have to conform to anybody else's idea of what a successful company is or how big it's supposed to be or that you have to hire all these roles that you're supposed to have of business development or sales marketing managers or whatever else that you don't necessarily really know whether you need or how they fit in, but you just feel like, well, that's what we're supposed to be doing because that's what big successful companies do. Bullshit. Yeah, that's actually interesting. I have talked to a lot of people who, when they ask how big 37 Signals is, I say 16, and they're like, wow, man, I remember when my company was 16. It was really fun. I knew everyone's name, and they, they're like reminiscing over it. And you just want to ask them, well, then why'd you give that up? Who forced you to do that? Well, if you loved it so much, why'd you stop doing it? You know, why are you at a point now where you're looking backwards to, for your, like, you know, for the love of the game instead of forwards? And it's kind of like, uh, it's just one of those things. It just seems like a, the natural progression is just to get big, 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 big for businesses. And, and, and uh, I think we're trying to push back about, against that a little bit. And certainly we've grown and we're growing. And, you know, we typically add one or two, maybe three people a year. But that's it. You know, we're not looking to double or triple every year or anything like that. Um, that just reminds me of the 90s when everyone was trying to staff up to 100 for no good reason other than they wanted to have a big company. And that'll wrap it up for this episode of the 37 Signals podcast. Again, you can find a summary of each episode at 37signals.com slash podcast. And we'll also put various links that we discussed during the episode there. See you next time.